Across central Wisconsin, people are tuning in and sounding off. Call in now. 715-845-2155. WSAU Feedback on AM 550, FM 99.9, WSAU. Well, hello there. I'm Chris Conley, guest hosting today for Meg Ellison. Meg will be back tomorrow. The last time I filled in, it was closer to Martin Luther King Day, and I spoke about Dr. King's dream. And I put forward that his dream has been co-opted by those on the political left. What was Martin Luther King's dream in a few words that we can all understand? His dream was of a colorblind society. That's what he said. His I have a dream speech at the reflecting pool at the Lincoln Memorial that my children someday will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, if you say in this day and age, I'm big into uh, reparations, like California is, a state where no one was ever a slave. California was always a free state. But they're working on reparations. If you say, no, no, I'm into racial set-asides. I'm into affirmative action where not the most qualified person gets a job or gets a slot in the incoming class, but uh, we have to make sure that it's balanced uh, ethnically. That's not Martin Luther King's dream. Now, that may be a goal that you're working towards, and hey, that's your business. But don't say that that's what we celebrate the best-known civil rights leader's legacy in the United States over, because it's not. That's not the colorblind society that Martin Luther King advocated for. So now, here it is. I get to guest host again. It is February 1st, the start of Black History Month. And let's stay in a similar theme. And I will start with my mother. My mother's not a bigot. Um, My mother once had a discussion with me about how she was taught slavery when she was in high school. Now, she went to a private school, a Catholic school, that's no longer there in New York City. I joked, once once she made it out of Immaculata, the school had no further purpose. They, they shut it down. It's an apartment complex now. But what was taught about slavery at Immaculata High School when my mother was a student there in the 1950s? And in New York City, most of the Catholic high schools began to be integrated. That is, had, had black or Hispanic students in addition to white students in the 1960s. So my mother most likely would have attended an all-white, private, religious high school. And what they were taught about slavery was bunk. I mean, it's an embarrassment. People who were taught the lessons that she was taught about slavery in the 1950s really do need to be re-educated because what they were taught is a great disservice about a significant, not an overriding, but a significant part of American history. What was she taught? Again, I, I remember this this conversation, and you almost want to slap your forehead. Um, that slaves had a very difficult life in Africa. Tribes there fought against one another and rounded up others as captives and then sold them to Europeans. And those who came to the United States, well, in the long run, they, they did okay that um, they were introduced to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. 
They may have learned a trade on the plantation that they were at, and usually when their master died, they were freed, and then they were free to become productive people in the New World. Well, that's a gross distortion of history. That, that bears almost no resemblance to reality. There was no one who was captured as a slave, made the horrific middle passage to probably the Caribbean first, where they'd be nursed back to some form of health, and then sold at auction as human chattel. Um, that wasn't a good experience for anyone. And to teach teenagers or high schoolers, as we were teaching as late as the 1950s, that, oh, they were better off here. They got religion, and they got a trade, and maybe after working all their lives for nothing and feeling the master's lash from the moment they could stand upright and be productive to the time their master may have died when they were old and broken down, um, then maybe they would get their freedom. That's a good deal for no one. And that that was what was taught is a tremendous disservice. Just like the 1619 Project is a tremendous disservice, that slavery touches every aspect of American life, and that the slaves here are the true owners, inhabitants, builders of America, that's not true either. The truth lies somewhere in the middle. So, for the first segment of this program today, on this first day of February, on Black History Month, observed around the United States, I would like to tell you three things that are not being taught today about slavery in the United States, but should be. And without it, our students get a distortion of what slavery was like and its impact here in the United States. And the first two are very damaging and harmful things that are not widely known, but should be. The first is this. That in America, our practice of slavery, the way slavery was institutionalized, was particularly cruel and brutal compared to slavery in other parts of the world. To call our type of slavery a peculiar institution is right. And what is the thing that's not taught in that area that should be? That our system of slavery in the United States had no respect for the family. And other slave nations or areas of the world where people were kept in bondage, family units were kept together. Not so in the United States. Our institution of slavery involved families being broken up. That if a healthy black slave was thought to be likely to run, they'd be sent further south. No matter if you had a wife and children that you had bonded with and were living as a family unit, say, closer to the border of northern free states. The breakup of the family was generally unique to slavery in the United States, and it made the institution particularly brutal. Why? Because it robbed people of their identity. That even decades, or in some cases a hundred years later, when freedom finally came, People had no way of tracing their heritage, of knowing where they came from, knowing who they belonged to, because our system of slavery simply didn't allow for that, didn't respect the family unit. That's not widely taught in schools when we actually teach the institution of slavery, and it should be. That people should be taught that an ugly chapter of American history is that the slavery practiced here was more brutal than elsewhere. Something else 
that is not widely taught, but should be. That we had a slave breeding industry in the United States. How is slavery normally taught here? Well, you know, someone had to pick the cotton, and it was the people who were in bondage who were out in the fields picking the cotton. It required a tremendous amount of manpower. The only way to do it economically was to uh, have people as slaves doing the work for free and, uh, and doing it under brutal conditions. Okay, great. Um, we're not going to have tobacco grown in Virginia um, unless we've got slaves who are doing the work for free. It's a labor-intensive activity. But what is not taught is that there were many plantations whose sole existence in the United States was to produce more slaves. That the British outlawed the importing of slaves into the New World and into their colonies. So, in other words, there were not going to be ships going from Africa to the Caribbean and then uh, having slaves transported to market in New Orleans or Richmond where they would be sold and, and, and booked and be treated as, as human cattle. Once the British put a stop to that, it was, well, the supply of slave labor had to be homegrown. And that there are many plantations in the United States from those dark days that were not in the cotton-producing or tobacco-producing business, which is what's commonly taught. They were in the human breeding business that there was money to be made by making sure that there was a new homegrown supply of slaves. And again, no respect there for the family unit, that those groups were simply broken up as if they were prized livestock. And to not teach American slavery that way is an inaccurate teaching of American history, that our unique, brutal institution of slavery was worse here than in other parts of the world. There is one other part in this three-part lesson of how slavery should be taught that I would like to share with you, and it involves the Civil War. Um, now seems like a good time to take our first break. I'll also have time for your phone calls, too, on this first day of February, Black History Month. I'm Chris Conley, your guest host, and this is Feedback on WSAU. This is Feedback. Chris Conley filling in for Meg Ellison on February 1st, first day of Black History Month. As you may have deduced from the first segment, I'm not afraid of teaching honest and real and authentic American history. In fact, I think we do our children a disservice when we don't teach history the right way. And why am I not afraid or not bashful about teaching our country's shortcomings? Because I'm a patriot, because I believe that we happen to live in the greatest country ever, and that one of America's best traits is that we correct course, that we are a moral people, and that when we see the sin and the stain of slavery, that Americans did something about it. And that's the other part of this history lesson that is not taught correctly, and that should be, and that's the geopolitical part of the Civil War. You know, the Civil War and World War II are probably the most studied military conflicts ever. I mean, there are volumes and volumes of strategy surrounding the battles of the Civil War. 
No, General Lee did this. General Sherman did that. General Grant did this. This military unit formed its lines here. They retreated to here. This was their flank. We attacked over here, and this side won. There's all kinds of history about that. What is not taught is the geopolitical situation. In the North, the Civil War was fantastically unpopular. That even though there were people in the North who hated slavery, the idea of we should lay down white lives for black freedom in the South was a bridge too far for many Northerners. They said, yeah, um, we'd like that slavery thing in South Carolina and Georgia to stop. We'd like to put an end to that. Um, but I'm not sending my son off to the Battle of Bull Run so that he can come back a cripple or dead. That was unpopular. There were draft riots throughout many of the cities in the U.S., um, including New York, where the American army had to be called in to fight street gangs of New York who refused to enlist for the draft. The draft was unjust also. Rich people could buy their way out of the draft. It was 300 bucks, a phenomenal amount of money during Civil War times. But if you had the scratch, you didn't have to send your son off to die in some faraway place in the southern U.S. And if you were poor, or if you were an immigrant fresh off the boat, you were told to pick up a rifle, and your first order of duty was to fight for your brand new country from wherever you came from over in uh, in Europe. Your country needs you right now, son, so... um. Welcome to New York or Boston Harbor. We're going to feed you and clean you up for a few days, and uh, then you're enlisted in the Army because we need you. Abraham Lincoln's role in the Civil War is not well understood. In fact, it was said early in the war, Lincoln said that he would welcome the southern states back with their slaves if the fighting would stop. Well, why would he say something like that? Well, you know, for the first year or year and a half of the war, the South seemed to win every Civil War battle. There was a concern, because Washington, D.C. and Richmond were so close together, that the South might actually attack and win in Northern Territory. After all, they had victories in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania was in the North. And people were saying, gee, what if they circle around and surround Washington, D.C.? Um, maybe we should negotiate some kind of uh, settlement. And it took the third and fourth year of fighting before the North, which is the part of the country that had more money, had more manpower, had more resources, finally got the upper hand on the South. But that was not obvious at all in the first year or two of fighting. And even to the third or fourth year, I mean, what happened during the Civil War back then? We didn't do a lot of fighting during the winter. You kind of hunkered down and regrouped then. And then when the warmer weather came, a new round of fighting. Man-to-man, hand-to-hand, brutal fighting that took scores of lives in a single day or two's worth of battle would begin. And as we entered a third and fourth year, the pressure was mounting on Abraham Lincoln to reach a negotiated settlement. Again, people in the North didn't want to serve in the army, didn't want to go down south and fight. Um, draft riots were pulling the North apart, and Abraham Lincoln was told, if there's an offer for peace, if there can be a negotiated settlement, he ought to take that. And Abraham Lincoln, in his brilliance and fortitude, and again, not properly taught at the time, 
not only said, no, I'm going to see the war through to victory, but that he would pass the 13th Amendment, which would ban slavery. And the two have to be seen as interlocking, as working together. Why? Well, let's imagine Lincoln did the easy, the expeditious thing. We'll negotiate a peace with the South. There'll be a rival nation that will take up some land here in North America, and they'll continue to have that institution of slavery. Well, Abraham Lincoln knew that as the North expanded further west, and as the South expanded further west, what would happen? There would continue to be bloody battles that the war would never end over which parts of the West would allow slavery, be part of the South, and which parts would be part of the North. We already had those things in Missouri, a slave state, and bloody Kansas, a free state where lots of people brought their slave labor in anyway and were willing to fight other Kansans over the right to hold human chattel. Abraham Lincoln, in his wisdom, knew this. He also knew that while the North might not trade with the new South, that the South would still need a continuing supply of slaves. And where would that labor come from? That the institution of slavery would have spread further South, into Latin America, into the Caribbean, into South America, because that's where the South would get its new supply of people in bondage, that Abraham Lincoln knew that the North American continent and Central America and South America would be largely a haven for the institution of slavery, that it would be the North that would be the rare exception. And it was Abraham Lincoln, through his incredible courage and foresight and fortitude, that saw the war through to victory and got a constitutional amendment passed that banned slavery once and for all. And again, the Civil War, we teach a lot about individual battles. Oh, Robert E. Lee, he was a brilliant military tactician. He was. And that the North had to, had to fight with incredible numbers of men and incredible losses to finally defeat the South, and they did. And then we had Sherman's march to the sea that finally subdued those old Confederate boys who were going to rise up again. All of that is true. But the geopolitical part of the war is not taught properly. It's not explained the way I just explained it to you. And it is a critically important part of American history. It is why there is no slavery today in North America. And if you're not taught that, then you don't have a proper understanding. Again, I, I'm, I'm not bashful at all about having people taught and explained why American slavery was particularly brutal. That's true. That's a part of our history. It's a shameful part of our history. We own it. And the outcome of the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln's greatness as the greatest president needs to be taught as well for finally bringing the institution of slavery to an end. We're overdue for our news break. I'll take some of your phone calls, too. 715-845-2155 if you'd like to join this conversation. I'm Chris Conley, your guest host today on Feedback. This is Feedback on AM 550, FM 99.9, and Warsaw 95.1 WSAU. I'm Chris Conley. Look, I think we do a disservice if we whitewash the teachings of history. 
really, no, no one benefits from knowing an inaccurate story about our nation's history. And on this, the start of Black History Month, uh, it's a fine time to discuss how do we teach slavery? And what are the things that are left out that really shouldn't be? And we're taking your calls, 715-845-2155, 715-845-2155. For those who have held through the news break, thank you for being patient. Hi, you're on Feedback. Go ahead. Hey, good morning, Chris. Morning. Wanted to thank you for your analysis, and I would agree with everything except one thing. Go ahead. Uh, the one thing that I disagree with is that there are thousands of children who are currently in sexual slavery as a result of our border crisis, and that that needs to be taught. It's a different type of slavery, but there are thousands and thousands of women and children in the United States who are in sexual slavery right now uh, due to uh, what the cartels have done and what this administration has done. And so we have slavery. It is alive, and it is thriving in the United States. And I, I am completely appalled by Mount Pleasant High School uh, Assistant Principal Harvey Stephanie, who uh, recently put out an email asking for money to support to pay off a coyote uh, for one of their students. And he, he basically said that these people are trying to help, that these people are helping these children and that you know, he was looking for funds. No, no, they're not. Right, right. You, you see that correctly, that a coyote is someone who is exploiting desperate people who are trying to come into this country illegally. And you know what? I agree with your point. It is a different part of American history. But I, I'll unpack and go through this a little bit. One of the reasons that I am opposed to what's happening at the southern border is I don't want anyone's American experience, however you get here, legal, otherwise, applying for asylum, waiting your turn in line to get your green card, however it is, I don't want anyone's American experience to begin by being exploited by others. And you're right, if you're an underage guy, you're recruited into the drug trade. You're going to become a mule. You're going to carry illegal cargo into the U.S., and then uh, maybe a gang will take you in. I don't want that to be the start of, of anyone's American experience. And if you happen to be traveling with your family and you're a young girl, you're going to be sexually exploited. And I find that just morally bankrupt, that a family so desperate to come into the U.S., probably illegally, would give up their daughter here, honey, take one for the team so the rest of the family can come in. No, that's not how anyone's American experience begins. And that's why I want border enforcement. I want the people who exploit young boys and young girls that way to be put out of business. And the way it is now, look, getting up to the border is difficult. Um, having some help getting into the country and then being told kind of what to do once you're here, how to avoid being caught, how to make your way into the uh, interior of the country, allowing yourself to be caught and then paired up with someone who's not really a sponsor or a family member but might pretend to be. That's not how anyone should arrive in the United States. And by the way, if you are a young boy who is then muling drugs, or if you were a young girl who's in prostitution or sexual slavery from all of this, why would you possibly have respect for your new country? Look at how you were defiled and degraded to get here. So are those people going to become good and upright American citizens? No, they're not. They're going to learn that this is a place where people are taken advantage of, 
where people are exposed to the brutality of, of other human beings and that that's how you get along to go along in America. And that's a horrible, horrible example, which is why what's happening at our southern border needs to be stopped. That every mile or every link of fence that we put up or every additional ounce of human protection that uh, through our border security or through calling out the National Guard or partnering with law enforcement to keep people from being able to bring in others illegally and then exploit them, all of those are efforts that are very necessary. No, I, I think that's a great uh, a great case. Now, look, my discussion is about the teaching of slavery, the, the institution of slavery that came to an end when the Civil War came to an end. But your point is well taken. Um, is history repeating itself? Yeah, uh, whoever said that history doesn't repeat itself perfectly, but it often rhymes? Yeah, there, there's a lot of truth to that. 715-845-2155 if you would like to join in the conversation. I think that one of the ideas that will be trotted out during Black History Month is the idea of reparations, which I think is so off the rails that you could almost do an entire show on it. Like California is the state that's furthest along on reparations, and California was never a slave state. California believes that people should be paid for whatever injustice happened to them in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the civil rights movement, and forward. And I don't know how in the world that works. Do you give reparations to someone who came to the U.S. voluntarily, say from one of the African nations? Someone comes from Senegal or from Nigeria and says, I'd I'd like to live in the United States. And let's hypothetically say they came here legally. They arrived in the 80s or 90s. California will give them reparations. Yet they chose to live here. Someone who is of mixed race Again, I I don't know how you do the racism and social justice thing when we have more and more and more people who are of multiple ethnicities. So a child who has a black daddy but a white mommy, mommy oppresses daddy? That's what's being taught in some of the schools. And the child says, that's not what I see in my house. Uh, I've got a mom and a dad who are in a loving, committed relationship, and they're raising me. I'm the product of that relationship. Part one ethnicity, part another. California would give the child of mixed race reparations. How, how does that work? People whose families cannot trace their heritage back to slavery, again, even though it would have happened in other states, not in California, are still eligible for reparations. And in California, the reparations amount is so high I I have no idea how they would plan on paying for it, probably through some federal program, because the amounts I can't even imagine a state with an economy like California being able to uh, to afford it. Um, They are proposing wiping off all college and credit card debt and then paying up to the, the, uh, the group that's furthest along is the one in San Francisco, paying minorities what the median income is to live in the city. It's about $90,000. That's a lot of reparations. 715-845-2155, if you'd like to join in the conversation. Hi, you're on Feedback with Chris Conley. Go ahead. Hey, Chris. Uh, this is Ken from Walsall. Hi. Hi. Uh, uh, I, I had a couple points. I loved your, your uh, overview of the, the Civil War and Abraham Lincoln. Um, just wanted to pose a few thoughts uh, for you to maybe comment on. Go ahead. Hang up. Um, number one, 
when I went through history courses in school, I happened to keep all my textbooks and even my papers from grade school. And Have you looked back at them and you say, what the heck was I being taught? Well, no. I was I was taught about slavery, and it was, there, it was there. Nothing was whitewashed. I think that's a liberal claim that, you know, certainly there were some, uh, certainly some teachers that might have done that. But I remember back even in the uh, 80s, they were claiming that in history textbooks, they would describe Egyptians as white and not black, that sort of thing. And I still have those textbooks, and I go back there, and that's not the case I found in my textbook. Okay, well, you know what? You're referencing what you were taught in the 1980s, which means that you're probably younger than me. And again, the example that I know of is from my mother telling me what she was taught. And what she was taught is simply, I mean, it's a bastardization of history. Um, that uh, To say that, uh, well, slaves were better off here. You know, they, they got religion. They, they got a more civilized society. Um, no, no one was fortunate to be a slave. And that's what was being taught in the 1950s, at least when, when my mom was in history class. No, I, I, could, I could understand that. A different generation, but we're still talking about now what is your mom's generation still alive. Yep. I mean, we're talking about people that are complaining about history being whitewashed. And these are people who were brought up when you were and when I was and afterwards with a bunch of liberal teachers in the school. So I don't understand what the complaint is now. They, they're, they're revisionists. They've gone so far that they've flipped it upside down to the other extreme. No, no, I, I, I don't disagree with you. Listen, uh, those are good points. And you know what? God bless you for saving all of your old history books. 715-845-2155 if you'd like to join us on feedback. 715-845-2155. I remember in college what I used to do with my old textbooks. Um, you could sell them back to one of the college bookstores. They would buy used textbooks. Again, you may have bought the textbook for 50 bucks. They, You'd sell it back to them for $10. But I remember if we sold back the textbooks that we didn't particularly like, pizza party at the end of the semester. We'd go down to the Varsity on Marshall Street in Syracuse, and we'd order a, a nice big Greek pie, and we would have uh, our end-of-semester party. 715-845-2155. Caller, it's your turn on feedback. Go ahead. I just wanted to say I think you're a couple of great American here. You and Meg both. Well, Meg does a fine job when she's hosting the program. In fact, um, I will give you a preview of some bragging that's coming out. Um, Meg and I and all the people who work behind the microphone um, once, uh, twice a year, every six months, we get our report card. We get our ratings. And Meg has now been with us for four of these rating cycles. The first one, not very good. But Meg was a rookie. She was a beginner then. In the second and third groups of ratings, that goes back a year and a half and one year ago, first place, this program, number one. And I'm glad to share with everyone that we've held on to uh, to all of that audience and that, you know, what, what do we have now? A newer host who will admit the... the Meg openly says, I'm still learning the radio thing. And you know what the lesson of Meg is? And I'll share it all with you. So gather close to the radio. Well, well, she's not here. Um, We can train animals to do the radio thing. Here's where you say the call letters. Um, Here's where you say the station's positioning statement. Here's where you do the time check and the weather. Um, All of that can be learned. 
But what attracts an audience is content. It's the things that you talk about, the ideas that you share, how you present them, how you interact with people on the phone. That's what builds the audience. And Meg will tell you, hey, I'm still a radio rookie. But her content, the way she presents the issues that she cares about with with passion and detail and enthusiasm, that's what attracts the audience. That's what, what makes the show go. And that's why she's had and continues to have such tremendous success. 715-845-2155 if you'd like to join us. Got time for a few more calls here on Feedback. Caller, thank you for uh, calling in. It's your turn. Go ahead. Yes, uh, I have a question for you. Um, What about the Indian nation? I'm from Indian descent, and we're still considered a conquered nation. So now, now hold on, because I, I want to be clear on this: a Native American tribe or Indian, like from India? No, Indian. I'm part of the Ojibwa tribe. Yes, Ojibwa Falls, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, let me take a stab at this. And by the way, you're free to agree or disagree. American treatment of the Native people here, horrific. We, we did not follow our treaty obligations to many of the tribes all around the country. Um, when their land was determined as more valuable, they were moved or forced off. And, and our history in that part of the American story is not good. We have done, I, I think, we are trying to do a good job in setting that right. Um, are we able to take back genocide against the tribe? No, there's there's no way to undo that. It's a shameful part of uh, American history. Um, but there are many tribes that have effective economic development plans, casinos and, and, and what have you. And is money an imperfect way of making up for those sins? Of course it is. Um, but it's a tool that's available to us and is being used. And I, I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Well, the, the reason I brought this up is, is I'm not looking for reparations, nor do I want it. It is a part of my ancestors and has gone through. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is, why is one group looking for a handout? The Indians have not, to a point, in some ways they have. But the mindset that we have in this nation is, is that we throw money at it and it will fix it. It does not work that way. We learn from our mistakes, just like we do in everyday life. And we are not learning our everyday mistakes and taking it to the bank. No, I I, I think there's truth in that. And, And I thank you for calling in and sharing. It's time for a break here, and then we'll continue our conversation between now and 9 o'clock. I'm Chris Conley, your guest host on Feedback on WSAU. In the limited time we have left for today's history discussion, it's something that I'd like to leave you with for how we should think of history in the future. It's another thing that we often get wrong. The perception is that history is written by the dominant culture, that history in the United States is dominated by white people. Well, that's not an accurate look at history. That you look at our nation today, and our nation is more diverse than it ever was. And what we have to begin changing the way we think of history as 
is that history is not what white European men did when they arrived here, that all other groups have made contributions to our country too. African-American history, which we celebrate during this month, needs to be integrated into American history. African-Americans have been here as long as whites have been. Their story is part of America's story. And so it is for Hispanics, for Native Americans. They are all part of what is now the United States of America. And to look at history into little walled-off boxes. Oh, well, here's what happened when the Europeans arrived at Plymouth Rock. And, oh, the pilgrims, they had their first Thanksgiving. And, uh, and suddenly we had Boston Harbor. And then we didn't like the British very much. And we went to war. And all of that, that's white person's history. But there were blacks and Hispanics and Asians and Native Americans and other ethnic groups that I, I haven't even mentioned that were all part of those stories. And what we need is a more holistic history approach that, that encompasses all of them, all of them Americans. We're out of time for today's edition of Feedback. Meg is going to be back tomorrow. Thank you for joining me today. I'm Chris Conley. Take care.